Shabbat Shalom. I will be reading today from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, Three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved. And you shall, and you, pardon me, you'll be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also, after believing in the Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, who was I, who was I, that I could stand in God's way. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Thank you, Pixie. Chag Sameach. Got to get that guttural chag sameach there. Um, welcome. This is the conclusion of a three-part message on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, the last couple of Shabbatot, we looked at um, the other aspects, which is, first of all, the Harvest Festival, because this was the beginning of the harvest in Israel. And uh, it's also called the Feast of First Fruits. Um, and if you remember, just to smoke your brain a little bit, uh, this was the second festival of, of First Fruits, because the first First Fruits was the harvesting of the barley. And this festival, Shavuot, um, was the beginning of the First Fruits of everything else, wheat and and pomegranates and so on and so forth. Israel was very, um, 
a very fruitful country in those days. Still is, by the way. I don't know if you knew that just about every possible fruit and vegetable grown every place with exception of Antarctica is grown in Israel. That was a joke. <laughs> I don't know that there's anything grown in Antarctica, but you get my drift. So Shavuot was bringing first fruits, which, by the way, was an expression of thanksgiving. Because if you're a farmer, it is highly inconvenient to stop in the middle of a harvest and trek down to Jerusalem, which is a couple days worth of journey, and bring first fruits and then come back to, to your land and continue doing the, the agriculture and farming. Very inconvenient, but the Lord's perspective was, I get what comes off the top. I don't get the leftovers, the disease, the lame. I get right off the top, and I get the best. And by the way, th this may be a new concept for you. Uh, it applies to us today that we seek to give God the first fruits that we have, not just financially, but also just in terms of who we are and our time and our energy and the time that we spend with God. You know, sometimes you, you say, God, it's been a long day and I'm tired. Okay, um, our Father who is in heaven, etc. Um, or Lord, bless everybody, bless my family. Good night. The Lord will take what we give him, but he really prefers the first fruits because we convey to him just who he is. He is a, he is a great king, and he is worthy of our worship. This festival is also today, especially out of Israel, primarily celebrated as the giving of the Torah, because the rabbis looked at Exodus and determined that from the time Israel left Egypt until the time the Torah was given in Mount Sinai was probably about the same time that would put it at the Feast of First Fruits. So this is celebrated as the giving of the Torah and you have people staying up all night studying the Torah. It's called Lil. Shavuot, and uh, for us who are in the Messianic Jewish community, along with fellow brothers and sisters who follow Yeshua, Shavuot is a festival of the giving of the Spirit of God, which is prophesied um, earlier on in the Old Testament. Today is a little different. The message that I felt led to, to give has a somewhat different emphasis and so I want to pause and ask that the Lord would give us the ears to hear what He wants for each of us to receive today. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word that is alive and actively powerful and sharper than two-edged sword. Lord God, we pray for each of us 
to have the ears to hear from you, Lord, and, and each of us needs to hear in our language, and so we pray for that to happen. That the miracle, Lord God, of us hearing your voice and your word will take place today. Thank you, Lord, that you're able, and we ask all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. I just want to go back um, to chapter 10 and, and do a bit of a um, reviewing of the video, so to speak, or of what took, what's been taking place in these two chapters. You're familiar uh, uh, with Acts chapter 2 on the outpouring the Spirit of God on a primarily Jewish audience. Yes, there were a few Gentile converts that we see in the book of Acts in chapter 2, but it was primarily something that God was doing with a Jewish bunch. Uh, by the way, something that folks who preach in Acts chapter 2 often ignore. This is something that God was doing with Israel uh, in fulfillment of prophecies such as in Isaiah where the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit upon them like water and dry ground. The nation of Israel was very dry spiritually and God poured out his spirit and that's what happened. However, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish community was largely left out at this point. We see earlier in, in Acts chapter 8, for example, that Philip goes down to Samaria. And by the way, Philip, along with a number of the other brothers, were Hellenized Jews. In other words, they had Greek names. By the way, remember that Philip was the name of Alexander the Great's father. Not a particularly Jewish name. Um, Philip apparently grew up around a lot of Greeks, spoke Greek, was comfortable around non-Jews, and the Spirit of God just nudged him to go down and preach the good news among the Samaritans. And by the way, remember that Philip was the guy who was involved in collecting money and distributing money to, to the needy. Not one of the big shots, you know, the apostles. But somehow, God raised him up. Just a uh, reminder that God has gifts for each of us. Gifts, plural. That we may start small, and then at some point the Lord said, you've been faithful in the little things. I will move you on and give you a greater responsibility. That's part of the picture. And that's what God did with Philip. He goes down to Samaria and the power of God breaks out big time. Um, people are healed. Uh, demons are cast out. Uh, Samaritans come into the kingdom of God. Now let me explain that Samaritans were considered at this point sort of half-breeds because there were basically a goulash of people that were brought from all over the Assyrian Empire and plopped right down in the middle of the northern kingdom, what was then known as Samaria. And at some point, these guys who were idol worshippers, the Samaritans, began to drift towards the God of Israel, and so they began to worship God and 
and, and followed the Torah. In fact, they have their own Torah. In fact, the Samaritans are the only ones in Israel and in the world today that celebrate the Passover by killing of a lamb. Philip comes, preaches, amazing things happen. Then the congregation in Jerusalem hears about it and, and says, we got to check this out. So John and Peter come up and they minister to these um, Samaritans and the Spirit of God comes big time on these Samaritans. You can say this was a Samaritan Pentecost, Samaritan Shavuot. And of course, you may know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, how this Ethiopian was coming back from Jerusalem and just happened to run into Philip. You know, these accidental actions are amazing, aren't they? That the God somehow brings people together. He shares Yeshua with this Ethiopian high official. But still, we're looking at five years when the good news of Yeshua did not go out to the Gentiles. And what did Yeshua say to the disciples? Go into all the world and share the good news with every nation. Now some people, of course, want to jump on that and say that the early Jewish believers were ethnocentric. You know, that they loved being Jewish. Everything was suspect that any time um, they would come to think about someone who was not Jewish, they would say, Gentile! Sort of the G word. Um, and that's nothing farthest from the truth. This is farthest from the truth, folks. Part of what we need to do, if you're to take yourself and put yourself into the first century and in a sense walk a mile in those Jewish moccasins, you would realize that yes, the disciples knew and understood God's plan for the Gentiles. I mean, Scripture is full of that. God so loved the Gentiles that he chose Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. They knew that. They got that. However, back in those days, in order for a Gentile to come into the kingdom of God, there were a couple of different paths he or she could take. One was they were called God-fearers, which means that they stopped worshiping idols. They began to worship the God of Israel. They hung around the synagogue. But they were not, they did not go the entire, the entire distance because to do that would mean that they would have to, the men would have to undergo circumcision and go through proselytes immersion, tvila. And that's kind of a personal statement, you know? A lot of people did not want to do that. So you find a lot of God-fearing Gentiles sprinkled or around the different synagogues as Paul travels from place to place, you don't find very many converts, proselyte, those people who were willing to say, yes, I want to follow the God of Israel to the nth degree. I will take on the entire package. Cornelius, who was Cornelius? Let's do a little background check on Cornelius. Well, he was a centurion. 
which roughly translates to someone who in our day would be a captain. He was in charge of a cohort that ran anywhere from 100 to 600 people. These guys were the backbone of the Roman army. They got things done. They were very effective. Uh, the Roman army ran because of these centurions. But he was not an ordinary centurion. He was a God-fearing man in this Roman enclave called Caesarea where the Romans were parked sort of as a, um, uh, an outpost of the Roman Empire. And centurion wasn't just an ordinary kind of a centurion. He was a God-fearing man. And we see that at least one other time in the first century. He was a devout man and someone who feared God with all his household. He's a God-fearing man. He, he rejected the Roman and Greek gods. And also, he was involved in giving money to the Jewish community. I mean, it says here to the poor, but that's most likely the folks he gave money to. We see another centurion in the Gospels where the centurion actually gave money to build a synagogue. This is also a good man, and he's praying. Now, when is he praying? He's praying the ninth hour. Why the ninth hour? Well, that was the customary time for Jewish prayer. Jewish people prayed three times a day. By the way, Daniel prayed three times a day. This was the last time that was prescribed. And he's praying. And by the way, when you and I pray, it's a wonderful time for God to get a hold of us. Because we're sensitized. We are tuned in to his frequency. It doesn't mean that God will not talk to us any other time. You know, sometimes he will speak to us in dreams because we're quiet and we're not talking. But in this case, he's praying. An angel comes from God and saying to him, your prayers have gone up and as a memorial and God has been listening to you. God has been listening to you and there's a program that is in place to see to it that you're brought from a status of being just a God-fearer to being someone who is fully a member of the kingdom of God. And the angel gives him command. And if you were to go back to chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 7, when the angel who was speaking to him, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier who was a personal attendant. He explained to them everything and sent them to, to Joppa. Because Cornelius understood the chain of command and authority, when he was given a command by God through this angel, he said, yes, sir, how high do I jump? Now think about how we respond to messages that come from God to us. We agonize sometimes. Other times we say, Lord, maybe it was last night's pizza. I'm not sure it was you talking. Um, you know, maybe it's wishful thinking, etc. He hears 
and he acts immediately. He sends to Peter. Now, Peter's vision uh, brings about a great deal of controversy to us who are part of the Messianic Jewish movement because our brothers and sisters look at, at Peter's vision and say, you know, Peter had grown up around Greeks. He always was coveting his neighbor's pork chops. And he wanted desperately to eat the pork chops, and he couldn't because he was a Jew. Now God gives him this awesome vision and says to him, don't worry about keeping kosher anymore. Go for it. You know, the pork chops you wanted, the bacon, the ham and cheese sandwich, all of that, yours, go for it, do it. People really do not understand the background here and what's going on. The vision that God gave him, folks, was disgusting. You know, it's, it's as if you and I would see a vision from God where we, we would have snakes and scorpions and rats and all kinds of other critters, and God would say to us, get up and have a lunch here. And our, I, I, I would guarantee that our response would be, God, no thank you. That's not how I eat. And because God wanted to make sure that Peter got it, this vision is repeated three times. By the way, remember that in Scripture, anything that is repeated three times is designed to capture your attention as if to say, hello, are you paying attention? Did you get it? Are you listening? For example, when we see the vision that Isaiah has, God is described as holy, holy, holy. Why? Not because people were stuttering, but it was designed to convey the fact that God is as holy as it gets. And the same thing, the same message is here that God is saying to Peter, I know this is disgusting, but get up and eat. No, Lord, I, I don't know about that. Second time it comes. Third time Peter finally gets it, and he's still struggling. He doesn't jump and says, God, you've set me free from these onerous laws of, the, of kashrut. He, he is perplexed. He doesn't know what to do with that. And, and the vision in this vision, God doesn't explain to him exactly what he had in mind other than to say, Peter, what I call clean, kosher, don't consider unholy or unkosher. And when Peter's explaining this vision to Cornelius, he doesn't say to Cornelius, you know, I, I was tied up in knots over the keeping of the Torah and God set me free from keeping the Torah and here I am today. No, look at verse 28 of chapter 10. You yourself know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner to visit him, yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. This is the explanation. And by the way, it is always a good thing to let the Word of God, to let Scripture ex interpret itself. 
And this is the interpretation of the vision. Do you see anything there about pork or about shellfish, about food in general? There's absolutely nothing here in his explanation about food. What he's saying is, God gave me vision, and this is what this vision was all about. And by the way, um, let me just explain that when he says unlawful, he doesn't mean that the Torah said you will not have any connection with Gentiles. That's definitely not what the Torah is saying. He's basically saying our custom in the first century is that we had business dealing with the Greeks, but we never invited them to our house. Why? Because they would involve themselves in idol worship. They would involve themselves in all kinds of stuff that are not permitted in the Bible. And they are ritually unclean, sometimes morally unclean. And when they step into our door, then we immediately become ritually unclean as well. It's not ethnocentrism. It's not saying, you know... The Gentiles are worthless and we are superior, we're superb. It's a desire to, to be godly, but in a fairly legalistic way. And you know what happens? We tend to take scripture and twist it and make a religion out of it and, and make legalism. You know, do's and don'ts, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. That's what was going on in the first century. By the way, the Torah, in the Torah you find that the Gentiles who lived in Israel, the aliens, the Ger, the Gerim, were pretty much part of the community of Israel. They were expected to participate in the celebration of Shavuot, this festival of harvest. For example, in Deuteronomy 26, 11, you... And the aliens living among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Who was to celebrate this festival, this pilgrim festival in Jerusalem? It was the Israelites and the aliens. Numbers 15, we're told the same laws and regulations would apply both to you and to the aliens living among you. God had a tender spot for the Gentiles living in Israel. He had the tender, tender spot for the Gentiles, period. But particularly for those living in Israel, he gave laws and regulations to make sure that they knew that they were welcome. Let me just rattle through some of these. Um, the aliens, Gerim, were expected to participate in all the major holidays, including the Day of Atonement, the Festival of Booths, Sukkot. They were expected to keep the Shabbat. They were expected to participate in the atonement that went on in the tabernacle, that when a Gentile or an Israelite sinned, they were expected to come and receive atonement from God. The one major exception was the fact that, that the Torah permitted the aliens not to celebrate the Passover. They could if they wanted to, 
But if they wanted to, the household, all the males in the household would have to be, would have to undergo circumcision. The point that I wanted to make with all of this is that the aliens, the Gentiles in Israel, were welcomed into Israelite society on all levels as Gentiles, folks. They're called aliens. They're not called those who used to be aliens or want to be Israelites. They're called Gentiles, aliens. There was no identity confusion in the land of Israel between the, the Jews and the aliens. They were welcome on all levels. By the way, this is something that, that we have embraced at Yeshua Tzion, that we have unity in Messiah, we have unity in diversity. That means that God doesn't take us and put us in a blender and homogenize us. And what comes out is Gerber. But rather, God takes us, different people, different backgrounds, strange to each other, perhaps, or strange, period. And somehow blends us together. Peter describes this as God taking us and who are living stones and fits us together. It's like bricks that God takes and somehow brings together. He doesn't expect the bricks to try and fit themselves. God is the one that does the fitting. And that's what you have in Israel in, in, during the times of the Torah. For some reason, some of that continued, the rest didn't. Gentiles continue to come into, into Jerusalem to worship. You know, during Yeshua's time, there were Greeks who went up to worship at the Passover. However, there was the court of the Gentiles, which is a big, gigantic place that held about 200,000 people. And then there was the court of Israel. And separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of Israel was a wall, and on it was a sign saying, if you are a Gentile, you dare not come through this door on the pain of death. Not real welcoming. And by the way, archaeologists found that sign. Isn't that something? That's what Paul refers to when he speaks about the middle wall of partition that separated Israel from, from the Gentiles. That Yeshua broke that middle wall of partition and brought Jews and Gentiles together. That was the Father's heart, folks. And by the way, when, when Yeshua took the tables and threw them over and then took the whip and, and, and chased people out, it wasn't because he was having a bad hair day. You may enter. It, it was because all of that, all of the transaction, all the commerce took place in the court of the Gentiles. What do you think would happen if a if a non-Jew came up to worship during one of the festivals or came up for prayer, how could they do that where people were busy exchanging money and, uh, and, and taking animals and, and purchasing them and 
you can imagine how disgusting it was if you were trying to be in an attitude of prayer. And Yeshua, by the way, when he threw everything over, quoted from the prophets, from Isaiah, saying, my house shall be a house of prayer, and you have made it into a den of robbers. Reflected the Father's heart for the salvation of the non-Jews, for the salvation of the Gentiles. He wanted them to be able to come and pray. But there was a great deal of antipathy, a great deal of uh, resentment and hatred to some extent between the Jews and Gentiles in the first century. A couple of examples. Paul is getting ready to speak to a Jewish audience in, in the temple. And he's talking to them in their own language, and they love it. They're eating it. They're eating it off his hands, having grand old time when Paul talks to them about uh, who he was and, and God's call to him. The moment Paul said, and oh, by the way, God called me to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles, the whole place erupted, and people were saying, this guy is not fit to live. Get rid of him. Kill him. You know, let's do it instantly. I kind of reflected the attitude of the people. Another example was when Paul came to the temple and some people were trying to spread stories about him. And there was a big ruckus. And some folks were saying, Men of Israel, help us. This man who teaches all men everywhere against our people in our Torah. And besides, he brought, did you hear this? He brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled his holy place. Great deal of antipathy. Why? Because, think of it this way, folks. Um, why did Israel go into exile in Babylon? Primarily because the nation decided to worship false gods. It was horrific. It was, you know, they in the temple of, of God, in the first, the first temple, there were statues to Baal and, and Ashtoreth and et cetera, et cetera. So by the first century, the Jewish people say, okay, God, we get it. You hate idol worship, and we're going to do everything possible to have nothing to do with idolatry. And since the ones who are practicing idolatries, idolatry are Gentiles, we're going to have nothing to do with them. So that was one reason for the hatred. Another one was the fact that they were under the domination of Gentiles, Romans. The Romans, by the way, didn't really get what being a Jew and what following the God of Israel was about. By the way, Pontius Pilate, wanted to bring a statue of Zeus into the temple area and that, that almost caused a riot. So you have those things on the Jewish end. You also have hatred on the Gentile end. The Greeks and Romans looked at the Jewish people and they called them atheists. Can you believe that? They called them atheists because the Jewish people only believed in one God instead of the whole collection of gods and goddesses. 
So all this is going on. So you come to chapter 11, and you have these Jewish believers, these Messianic Jews, saying in verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. I don't know if you caught the emotional tone here. This was not a statement where they're saying, ah, yeah, Peter, you, you, you did this. If you're familiar with Jewish dialogue, you know that there was a great deal of emotion and pounding of tables and great ruckus. And they took issue with him, meaning they judged him. Peter, what business did you have going to these people, eating with them, and getting defiled? And the news is going to spread that we who are followers of Yeshua are defiled. It's bad enough that we're being persecuted because we follow Yeshua. Now you're going to bring this shame on us. It was serious stuff. It was serious stuff not only because of what was going on humanly, but it was serious stuff because God was getting ready to roll up his sleeves and do some amazing things. And there was a lot at stake here. And Peter basically gets up. He doesn't say, oh no, what business do you have to condemn me? But he basically says, look folks, this is not about me. It's all about God. And he explains to them how it happened. That he was minding his own business, that he was praying, that he was in the middle of praying probably the, the second prayer of the third prayer of each day, being a good Jew, and God lays this stuff on him. And he says, look, who am I to argue with God? It's all about God. And what God considers to be clean, I have no business calling unclean or impure. By the way, the, the word for common is a better translation. I should not call anyone common because that simply means someone who is not holy. And what God wanted him to know was that he was going to take Gentiles, make them holy as Gentiles. That he was not going to put them in some kind of a uh, transducer and have them come out as Jews on the other end. Here you have God at work, folks. And yes, you have all the human junk going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. And yes, you have the fact that the disciples don't really get what, it's, what this is supposed to look like. But sanity saver for them, sanity saver for us, is that God is bigger than our humanity. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That despite the mix-up, despite the fact that to be a truly righteous Gentile in those days meant that you would first have to undergo conversion, despite all that, despite the fact that Jews did not want to sit down and have a meal 
with Gentiles. Despite all that, was God able to get through all of that? Because of this message, Peter understood that he had to mix socially with Cornelius and his people. What is the first thing that Peter does? He invites these men into his house. Understand that they were outside. He was talking to them from the inside to the outside. And when he gets the message, he understands what's going on. He invites them in. According to Jewish custom at that point, just by inviting them in, he would become ritually defiled. That's, those were the stakes that were involved. And Peter understood that what God was concerned about was not human custom. It's human custom. It's not the Torah. But God was concerned about the souls of these individuals. Amen. Their salvation. And yes, you, could, you can step back and say, you know, why did it take these Jewish believers five years before they started to preach the good news to the Gentiles? Why did they expect the Gentiles to become Jews? Well, let me, let me go to the other side here for a minute and point out simply that for 2,000 years, we who are Jews were expected to become Gentiles in order to receive Yeshua. What does that tell you? Human nature. Human nature simply means I'm right, and because I'm right, you have to become like me. And the answer, of course, is no. The only one who is truly right is God. And there's a very important pr principle that we have to get our arms around. And that is that God gave them a vision. The vision was go into all the world, preach the good news, make disciples of me. They had a vision. Okay? But they had no clue how to go from where they were to pursue and accomplish that vision. And God doesn't expect, doesn't give us a vision and then say to us, okay, I gave you a vision, now you sit down and you strategize each and every single step in how to get the vision done. The same God that gives you the vision then will reveal to you and show you what specific steps you need to take in order to get that vision accomplished. Let me say that again. God is the one who gives the vision. God is the one who gives details and shows us how to accomplish the vision. Amen. And what do we do? What do we do, folks? God gives us a vision and then we take the ball and run with it. As if to say, God, you're big enough to give me the vision, but you don't have what it takes to lead me and show me what to do, how to get there. And yes, you had all these problems going on here. But you know, God is big enough to where he was able to get through all these issues. And if it took showing Peter this disgusting vision three times, he would do it. He would do it. God had a plan. And the plan was that Gentiles had to come into the kingdom of God. Salvation of the Gentiles was planned way back in eternity. It was prophesied by the prophets of Israel. 
And God would see to it that despite human cluelessness, it would get done. And somehow that the Jews and the Gentiles would come together as individuals, as unique individuals, co-heirs, co-equal in the kingdom of God without one person becoming something else in order to become like the other person. So that the Jews are able and willing to celebrate heritage. The Gentiles are able and willing to celebrate who they are as well. There's no eth ethnocentricity, you know, no, no saying I'm better than you are because I am Jewish or because I'm Gentiles. And when God got through, the amazing thing is that you have people ecstatic. In verse 18 of chapter 11, the disciples said, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. No, not in that tone. God has given even the Gentiles. Wow, even the Gentiles have repentance that leads to life. It's an ecstatic statement because these guys had compassion. They just didn't know how this was going to happen. God saw to it that all of that would be taken care of. Peter gets up and speaks to Cornelius. And by the way, do you think that Cornelius had to have a nice, well-laid-out um, sermon explaining everything uh, who Yeshua was, what the good news was, having all that laid out in, in linear fashion? No. Peter starts to talk. He gets through a few sentences and God rolls up the sleeves and gets to work. Amen. So the point is not the spectacular speaking by Peter the point is the spectacular work by the power of God. Spirit of God is poured on these folks and they speak in tongues. What kind of tongues? We're not told explicitly other than there is some connection with known languages because the Jewish disciples know that these Gentiles are praising God. There's enough of an understanding going on there to know that that's what's going on. Again, Peter is saying to, to these disciples, these Jewish disciples, it's not about me. Don't jump all over me. It is God. God's plan. God working with his irresistible power to save the Gentiles and I'm just a participant by the way Cornelius does not become Jewish he continues to be who he was and I have no doubt folks that someone like Cornelius in the community of Caesarea made a huge impact on others who heard what happened to Cornelius and were drawn to the God of Israel. We also know that Philip comes into the picture at some point. 
But this is what God did in this, what I would call a Gentile Pentecost. God had already done the work with the Jews in chapter 2. He already did the work with the Samaritans who are considered sort of neither Jewish nor Gentile. And now he is stepping up and he is working with the Gentiles as Gentiles. It was a huge issue back then, folks. It continued to be a huge issue. It was for another 15 years. Think about it. From this point, from the time that Cornelius has this experience in his house with this household and Peter gets up and talks, another 15 years took place where people were still fussing with, what do we do with these Gentiles? And finally, they came together. There was uh, the Spirit of God led them to make a decision that basically reaffirms God's call for people as we are. God doesn't call us to be something we're not. He calls us to be who we are. It still is a huge issue, folks. We have whole congregations of Gentile believers in Colorado who had gone through conversion to Judaism. Do you realize that? Whole congregations have embraced the Ephraimite heresy that basically puts people into a, some sort of a transduction machine. They go into it as Gentiles and they come out as Israelites or as Ephraimites. And even folks who don't do those kinds of things still have a lot of insecurity about their identity. It's not just for Gentile believers, it's also for Jewish believers. Folks, each one of us is battered by society around us that seeks to undermine who we are, seeks to undermine our relationship with God, and seeks to tell us that we are not good enough, that we need to do something to become better people. It's true for Gentiles, it's true for Jews. You know, we have the Jewish community telling us that we are not good Jews. So part of what happens on the Jewish end is that folks try to become better Jews and better and better, better, better. In the meantime, Yeshua is over here. This insecurity of who we are in God and our acceptance by Him is something that's very pernicious. It, it's like a disease that works its way from the inside out. What defines our existence, what anchors our life is not who we are or what others think about us, but what God thinks of us. Amen. And here are a couple of statements that I want to encourage you to put in your pipe as it were, and just think about it. The right kind of pipe. <laughs> Psalm 139. For you created my inmost beings, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me say that again. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, either as a Jew or as a Gentile. God, you do not make a piece of trash. 
Can you say that? Amen. Or are you convinced that God goofed up with you, that he put the wrong DNA and didn't get it? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them. I know that full well. What defines you today? What defines you? Who are you? Who are you? Let me tell you what Scripture says to me and to all of us. We are sons and daughters of God. That's our primary bedrock definition of who we are in our existence. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Number one foundation, number one identity upon which everything else is built is the fact that we are God's kids. Amen. If you don't know that, you're going to be continually looking for other ways to define your identity. Either to become more Jewish if you're Jewish, to become more Jewish if you're Gentile, more Gentile if you're Gentile, etc., etc., God frees us from that identity confusion. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Folks, that's what anchors us. That's what keeps us steady in the midst of, of a sea of upheaval all around us. Regardless of the label, the ethnic label that we have on ourselves. And in this day and age, God has raised for the first time in 2,000 years a multitude of Jews who love Yeshua and want to follow Him as Jews. God has also raised a multitude of Gentiles with a heart for Israel who are fellow partners with us in the service of the kingdom of God. God wants for us to learn to serve Him together, give thanks that He saved us uniquely as we are. Let's pray. We bless you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the creator, that you fashioned us in our mother's womb. We ask your forgiveness, Lord, for all the times when we kvetch and complain why you didn't create us differently. Lord, we covet other people's identity. We pray, Lord God, for the special peace from you, the, the shalom, Lord God, to embrace how you've made us, to embrace what you're doing in our life, Lord, and to commit wholeheartedly to follow in that same direction. Lord God, speak to each of us. Lord God, where we struggle in this area, where we want to be something different that we're not, where we complain to you, we pray that you would speak to us today, Lord. Give us 
your chesed, your grace that leads to repentance, to change, to chuck that and to simply accept the truth of your word about who we are. We bless you and thank you, Lord God, in the name of Yeshua. Amen.